Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. What are you talking about? This conversation can serve purpose. You're Jay talking live, midnight to five. We're going to have a great hour at least. And if you can't catch it all, there's the Jay talking podcast. I'm Bradley Jay, your host, and Bob Allison, Robert Bob Allison, is in professor at the Department of History, Suffolk University, and he's a board member of the USS Constitution Museum and leader. You're the leader of Rev 250. And that's a group that coordinates historic sites in an effort to celebrate the 250th anniversaries of events leading up to American Revolution. Yes. By the way, you had a meeting today. Is it okay to talk about that? Sure. Okay. You had a meeting with some folks, including Nate Chidley. Yes. Who is uh, the guy who is in charge of the State House. Old State House, yeah. Old State House Museum. What's going on? Well, they're planning events because next year is the 250th anniversary of the Boston Massacre. So they really want to make some kind of a special event. So they're going to be focusing on Crispus Attucks, the role of Crispus Attucks, and how much we don't know about Crispus Attucks and how he becomes a symbol. So they're gathering together folks who have studied this or have an interest in this. So uh, what can we do with this exhibit? The Mass Historical Society is also planning an exhibit on the Boston Massacre for next year because it is the 250th. So... That's what's happening. The old state house is thinking about what they can do to make this really a special event, a meaningful event. And uh, you think they're going to do the play called uh, Blood on the Snow? Blood on the Snow? You know, absolutely. That's part of their plan. To, uh, this is a great play. I know you've seen it where they use the space where these events happen. This is the room where it happened. Really morning, happened 250 years ago. Yeah, the morning after the massacre, Governor Hutchinson meeting with the council, trying to figure out is there a way to avert a cataclysm from the events that happened last night. So it's all about the big debate over what do we do now? What do we do now, exactly. We know that this thing happened on March 5th, but then so what? What happened as a result? And you can begin seeing that in this play, Blood on the Snow. And that was earlier on, uh, 1770, right? That was 1770, yes. It was March 5th, and there were different. Uh, the town of Boston wrote its own account of what happened, calling it the horrid massacre that happened on King Street. There was a, a, a publication in England that said the late unhappy disturbance in on King Street. You know. <laughs> different views of different the same views, thing. Different views, yeah. And it's interesting that that's so early that um, Dr. Joseph Warren was alive at the time. He was. Lived nearby, was in town at the time. Yes. And he treated... You got a, yeah, yeah, he treated Some Monk, of victim, one yeah. of the victims. Monk, and he yeah. might have actually been on the scene or yeah. very nearby. He definitely wrote... He probably wrote the town report about what had happened. So he was very good at shaping public opinion, at writing things so that they would have a real resonance with people. 
Um, so that was one of his great skills as, as a penman, as a uh, presenter of arguments. And he had quite a sarcastic wit, too. I know you, you talked about him a lot last night, but we could talk about Joseph Warren for the rest of the year. I, I know. Well, we do have a, a very rich topic, which is going to take quite a while, and it's going to be great. It's uh, the story of the around-the-world trip of the USS Constitution that I, I, I didn't know much about at all until last week when I went to see you give a talk on it. It was great, and it's great that you're coming in so quickly after. It's fresh in my mind. Before we get to that, though, I was asking you a question concerning Boston history of the period as it kind of relates to the way things lay out today. You t- you've told me some time ago that the waterfront used to be right about Kilby Street, yes. not way down where it is now. Yeah. Only about 137 paces from the steps of the old state house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so if you turn left, you start to walk along what would have been the shoreline. Right. Yeah. And you keep going, you get to the Union Oyster House. Mm-hmm. And there's a sign that says Creek Lane. Yes. And I thought, hmm, there must have been a creek there. Mm-hmm. I have to ask Bob Allison about this creek. Yes. And have him make me understand what the lay of the land was mm-hmm. then. And I can mentally, over the top of that, understand what's there now. So what was there then? There was a little creek running between the mill pond and the harbor. You know, if you think about it, City Hall sits on a hill. And if you're in front of Faneuil Hall, basically at the Samuel Adams statue, you can see a curved uh, piece of art by Ross Miller in the set into the pavement. And it, that forms the original shoreline. So if you're standing looking at the Samuel Adams statue, with your right hand point toward the Custom House Tower, and you'll basically be tracing the water that way. And with your left hand, go along um, Clinton Street, that other street that runs into it, uh, you know, that goes on the north side of Faneuil Hall. That essentially was the waterfront, was the um, land. And then when you get to the Greenway, that would have been the mill pond. And that block where the Union Oyster House is, is called the Blackstone Block. And that is the oldest remaining streetscape in Boston. Those little narrow alleys were the width of streets. And so Creek Lane was a, uh, was a street. And if you followed Creek Lane down, you would come to Creek Square behind the Bostonian Hotel. And that is So where you take a right. Take a if right you're down going, Creek. Yeah. It depends going, on which way you're yeah, going. <laughs> yeah. And you, so the Union Oyster House sits on this block. You know, the Union Oyster House, that building has been there since the 18th century. And most of those buildings in that block have been there since the 18th century, but they were built on the existing lots from the 17th century. So they're brick buildings, 19th century or 18th century. And so that is the oldest remaining block showing how wide the streets were. And if you go down like Creek Lane, look up and you'll see the light fixtures and you'll see an EL on each one for Edison lighting because Thomas Edison installed that lighting in the 1880s. So this block has it's layers. Real. Yeah, this block has just layers of history. You find Ebenezer Hancock's um, counting house is one of the buildings there. And another fixture in the Blackstone block, of course, is the Boston Stone. And it's an old um, millstone. And it's set and it says Boston Stone, 1737. And I've heard tour guides give all kinds of accounts of what the Boston Stone signifies. This is distances to Boston are measured here. Actually, the truth is, you had this block with uh, very narrow streets, and so someone found this stone in their basement, 
And they said, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to set it in front of the building. That way I can tell people, okay, I'm at the building with the Boston Stone or take a right at the Boston Stone. So it has no real significance other than to mark that particular spot. It is probably a paint grinding stone because these were shops. People lived there. People worked there on this little block right along the water. But anyway, getting back to cre- the creek, that flowed between the mill pond and the harbor. And the idea was to build a causeway across the mill pond, and you'll never guess what the causeway is now. Causeway Street? Causeway Street, exactly. <laughs> and so at high tide, you could fill up the mill pond, and then you could let the, tide, let, when the, let the water out, and that would turn mills. So it was a 17th century way of generating power and industrializing Boston on that little area. And Creek Square, Creek Lane, you know, the creek flowed through a marshy area, so there actually was a bridge over Hanover Street to get you across at high tide. And It's interesting that one little street sign could have so much of a story. Uh, that's very true. I mean, each street, streets tell stories. A woman named Anna Wing wrote a book about the twisted and narrow streets of Boston, wrote about 100 years ago. And the name is spelled T-H-W-I-N-G. But streets do tell stories. You know, we name a street for someone as a way of remembering and as a way of telling a story and keeping a memory alive. But then it takes someone to ask, well, what does this mean? Or who was this person? Who is this named for, really, to bring it to life? Before we get into the actual story, yes. it'd be good to get some information for us. You didn't need to give the audience because it was at the museum. Right. They already knew yeah. the basics. And a quick history. You know, I'm talking... Four or five, four minutes of the ship up to that point, and mm-hmm. a little bit about the ship and how big it was and yeah. its capabilities and its armament and things like okay. that. Yeah, so the ship had been built in the 1790s. So it's about 50 years old at the time of the world cruise, and the life expectancy for a ship like this is about 10 years. And it had carried 44 guns. It had seen its great service during a war with France in the 1790s, a war with Tripoli in the first decade of the century, and then, of course, in the War of 1812. And then it's pretty much obsolete. We're building bigger ships. The British are building bigger ships. And so you don't really need this old creaky vessel. In fact, in the 1820s, the Navy was going to scrap it. And Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote a poem about this ship which really shames the Navy into saving it, but also inspires people to keep this ship. You've, you probably know the poem. I tear her tattered ensign down, long has it waved on high, and many an eye has danced to see that banner in the sky. Beneath it rung the battle shout and burst the cannon's roar. The meteor of the ocean air shall sweep the clouds no more. Her deck, once red with heroes' blood, where knelt the vanquished foe as the wind was hurrying o'er the flood and the waves were white below. No more shall feel the victor's tread nor know the conquered knee. The harpies of the land shall pluck the eagle of the sea. Better that her battered hulk should sink beneath the waves. Her thunder shook the mighty deep, and there should be her grave. Nail to her mast her holy flag, set every threadbare sail, and give her to the god of storms, the lightning, and the gale. And there it, were a lot of ships at the time. Was this a standout ship? This at was that a standout. Time? It already earned the name Ironsides, Old Ironsides. And it's not the last one left from that war, but it had had such an, a distinguished record in the war, defeating the Guerriere in August of 1812, and then defeating the Java in December of 1812, and then simultaneously defeating two British ships in 1815. It 
was really to become a symbol, a symbol for this country and what we can accomplish. And so there's a pressure. Why don't we keep it as a symbol? But it's an expensive thing. So the Navy kept trying to find things to do with it. One time they actually put a paddle wheel on the side so that it could propel itself faster. This was when it was in the Mediterranean. And then in the 1840s, it's sitting in uh, Portsmouth, Virginia, actually in uh, Norfolk, Virginia, and it's kind of rotting. And the Navy looks at it and says, you know, it's going to cost about $70,000 to get this ship ready for service, ready to sail. And Jack Percival, Mad Jack Percival, was a cantankerous Cape Codder, and he had risen through the ranks in the Navy. He had been a sailing master. You know, the route to become a captain is not by being a sailing master. He's the guy who oversees the sails, the rigging, and so on. And the captains were came up from being midshipmen and lieutenants. But Percival becomes a lieutenant, and he's a lieutenant for about 20 years. He's in his 60s when he is promoted to captain. And the Navy at this time was very top-heavy with old officers, and there's really not room for advancement. Mad Jack from Barnstable, although at this time his home base is Dorchester. He and his wife and adopted daughter live in Dorchester, and he sees this as his chance. He's become a captain. It's hard for a captain to get command of a ship, and he tells the Navy, I can get the ship seaworthy for $10,000. And the Navy says, okay, go ahead. And he does. He has the ship refit. It's fit to sail. And then he says, no, now what do I do? And the Navy says, well, let me sail it around the world. I think they're halfway hoping maybe he won't come back and that will get us rid of both this cantankerous guy and this creaky old vessel. Was there an actual purpose other than to get it the heck out of here? Well, it had two kinds of purposes. One was uh, bring the American ambassador to Brazil, where you've appointed a new ambassador. So, yeah, you can take him to Brazil. Also, find out if there is any coal in Borneo that we can lease the rights to. And those were the only two official things for the Constitution to do, otherwise uh, just to go around the world and uh, show the flag and um, don't annoy people. So you might think that there's no real need to find coal in Borneo because we have lots of coal here. Yes. However, yes. a lot of ships were coal-powered, yes. and they can't bring an endless supply of coal with them. Exactly. They need to resupply with coal somewhere, Yes, and we need to be sure they can. Exactly. So this would be a, a, a fueling station. A fueling, exactly, exactly. The Navy was slow to adapt to steam power, but merchant vessels are starting to use steam power. In fact, uh, Robert Bennett Forbes, who was a merchant, an American merchant doing business in Canton in China, had... Brought, built a steam vessel there. And there, so there are steam vessels in the Indian Ocean and in China. And this is revolutionizing ocean-going transport. The Navy is very conservative, slow to adapt to steam, and really won't until during the Civil War. So it, there had been a, a steam-powered warship built during the War of 1812. The Navy really didn't like it, doesn't see any real service. So it's slow to adapt. However, they do see an importance for coal. And also, if uh, Mad Jack can find coal in Borneo, all the better. So he gets a crew, and he sets on out. Yes. Did you have any information on the, the crew and how he Yeah, there are about 500. Wrang well, there are, you would sign up in those days to join a voyage, not to join the Navy. There are about half a dozen lieutenants. There is a surgeon, a naturalist aboard. If you're looking for coal, you need a naturalist. Oddly enough, there's not a chaplain. 
Usually the Navy would send a chaplain on a voyage like this, but I don't know if it was just Mad Jack didn't want, Mad Jack did all the preaching anyone was going to do aboard the ship every Sunday. He would read the art, articles of war and give sermons that some of the officers said they didn't understand what he was talking about. But uh, And of the sailors, there are about 212 of the sailors are foreigners, 170 or so are Americans. So the foreigners actually outnumber the Americans. The largest cohort was from the British Isles, but there are people from Germany, from Sweden, from China. There are about half a dozen guys from China aboard the vessel. They sign on in New York, and then when they get to Canton or Guangzhou, they sign off. They're allowed to do that because they're not citizens. Yeah, the the Congress had passed a law, a rule. The Navy had a rule that if you're not a citizen, you can get off at a different different times during the voyage. So then they have to pick up new people. Yeah, they would. And they do this all over the world. In fact, they're signing on people all around the world, in Macau, in Singapore, in uh, Brazil. They are signing on people all during this two-and-a-half-year cruise. So life in Boston, as we were discussing, was Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Dirty and stinky. Nasty at the time. People actually, I didn't think about this, and I, I can't imagine, but you said people just would spit their tobacco right on a carpeted floor. And if, if it's that nasty on the mainland, it must be really nasty living on a ship. Yeah. the man, Each man could have one gallon of water a day. That's for all purposes. Drinking, bathing, cooking. Your allotment was one gallon because the ship has to carry 50,000 gallons of water because every day it's going to use 500 gallons. That's one gallon for each man aboard the ship. It's not as though you're issued your gallon of water. That's what you would use. And there would be a um, barrel usually toward the um, bow in the uh, the galley area, and that's where you could get drinking water. And how many people run there? There are about 500, 500. Five aboard this ship. It seems Oh yeah, yeah. packed. It would be packed. and. You know, so you would. What would they? You wouldn't need. What would you need five hundred people for? The manning the sails. Oh the my sail, God! Taking care of the sails. Also, if there is a battle, you need about a dozen for each gun, and you would, okay. the men would be in guns on different sides. But so about five hundred is a complement for. Okay. Um, sa- manning the sails. Okay. Merchant vessels could do it with fewer because they don't have as much sailing, and of course, uh, yeah. So five hundred men, and you also need replacements. I mean, you need to have these men in shifts. So the men are on watch constantly. That is, there's yeah. going to be a group of men on watch. But if you're not on watch, you can't just go to your hammock because the hammocks are all piped up and stowed away at 8 o'clock in the morning until 8 in the evening. And so if you happen to be on, let's suppose you're on the watch from, I don't know, midnight to 4, and then, uh, or from 4 until 8 in the morning, you can't then go catch a few winks in your hammock because the hammock's been put away for the day. You don't get to sleep again until 8 o'clock at night. So it's a, it's a tough life for these guys on this ship. And because you know, you're crowded and you men smell. And, and not showering you're not, at no, all, no, ever. No, no, no. Do they um, go swimming? Do they jump over the edge and go swimming or anything? Not unless they happen to be in port. If they're at sea and you go swimming, you're probably, the ship's not going to stop left for you. Yeah, you're going to be left behind, <laughs> okay. yeah. You know, they don't just stop for a while. No. Let everybody no. swim. No. All right. 
uh, let's see. I don't want to get into the first stop until after the break. Anything else about life on on the sh- on the ship for ninety seconds or so? Well, punishment's pretty okay. In, if you're insolent toward an officer, you're going to be flogged. Get flogged. A, yeah, twelve la- twelve lashes with either a cat of nine tails or um, a smaller thing used to flog men. So you got to really have strict discipline with you do. 500 you know, guys. Oh, yeah. Some ships are worse than others. Mad Jack was not a strict disciplinarian. He was tough. The others are really brutal. I've read some accounts of some of voyages at the same time that just seem like uh, death trips. What about alcohol? Yeah. Every day you would get a grog ration. That is, you would have a, a shot of uh, rum mixed with water. That is, they don't want you taking your rum and saving it up. So it's mixed with water, so you have to drink it. So you're getting a daily grog ration. And okay. So they did drink water. So you, you hear about people not drinking water because mm-hmm. it's bad. They drink beer instead. But yeah. they did drink water. Yeah. And this place, this is very significant later on Yes. in the voyage. And uh, but how long were they gone? Two and a half years. Two they, and a half years. Yeah, they leave in the summer of 1844, and they come back in the fall of 1846. So they uh, start the voyage in Norfolk, Virginia, sail to New York, fit, fit out the crew, and then they leave New York. And their first stop is in the Azores because they need to replenish. I mean, they have to get fresh water regularly because they use, as I said, 500 gallons a day. Also, fresh provisions. I mean, they're carrying a lot of hardtack and salted beef, salted pork, other things, but they need to get fresh vegetables, fresh fruit, and fresh water pretty regularly. Take, take a lot of some sort of currency to buy stuff with. Yeah. And what currency do they take, and where do they keep it safe, and how much? They would have taken gold, probably, uh, and also letters of credit. And Every The Navy actually had storehouses around the world. That was one thing that the Navy had set up, like depots in different places. And Mad Jack does discover that some of the naval agents, imagine this, you're a lieutenant in the Navy and you were sent to Guangzhou or you're sent to Singapore and basically that's where you live, or Brazil. And you're there, you take care of all the provisions because lots of naval ships will be coming through. In some places, not many will be coming through, but still you have to keep an eye on all the stores. And, you'll, you know, you're going to need to replace sails and clothing and other things. And so uh, in throughout the Navy, there's a problem with these provisions because the Navy's buying in bulk barrels of beef, barrels of pork, getting it from contractors. And, you know, the contractors are trying to get as much as they can. The Navy's trying to pay as little as they can. And sometimes they open the barrels and discover everything is rotten. So then what do you do? You have to throw everything out, but that means you're also short of provisions. So this is a problem. We could go on all night talking about the problems of provisioning a fleet that's going around the world on these extended voyages because you can't carry everything you need, so you're going to need to replenish. So, yeah, there will be some gold aboard, and also the Navy will be shipping gold out to these various fleets, so it's not like you're carrying everything you need you know, you know, when you get to Guangzhou, that's when you're going to get a new cache of gold if that ship makes it. You know, ships do sink. Something to note is how far afield the United States had insinuated itself yes. and how, how far the Navy had oh, yeah. Yeah. spread out in a pretty short period of time. Exactly, yeah. And in fact, uh, when they get, they get to Brazil and they're there for a few weeks, they paint the ship there. And one of the officers writes, he keeps a meticulous journal. This is Lieutenant John Dale, who keeps a journal that I think he might have been anticipating publishing. And Dale also is a very good artist, so he does paintings of the various places they go. 
But he says, I haven't written much about Rio because that would be like describing New York. You know, everyone knows what New York is like, and every sailor knows what Rio de Janeiro is like because they've been there. So people that he would be hanging around with yeah. would already know about Rio. So oh, yeah, they've the been point? there. They've been there a lot, yeah. yeah. And Or similarly, um, Singapore is a place people are getting to know, and the ship spends some time in Singapore. Everywhere they go, they meet Americans. In Singapore, for example, the American consul's wife is Rachel Revere. That is Paul Revere's daughter. And she has just gotten from her brother, Joseph Warren Revere, who runs the family business, a bell for the church in Singapore, which he wants rung at 7 o'clock every night as the curfew, just like it would be in New England. So Singapore is the only place outside the United States that has a Revere bell. And Mrs. Blister, uh, Blestier was her husband's name, uh, is very hospitable. Ned Jack feels like he's going to die for most of the cruise, and he spends about six weeks in Singapore with Rachel Revere, staying in their house, trying recovering, which he does in Singapore. So they do see lots of places around the world, but they also see, you know, Americans. In, in uh, Zanzibar, the American sail uh, officers go into the bazaar in Zanzibar, and they see bolts of cloth from Lowell, as woven clo- cotton cloth. Which is preferred. They, they prefer it because they think the cotton, the, A, they're really not wild about the British who have just taken over India. And the cotton that's being manufactured in England, the cotton initially comes from India, is shipped to England, and then is shipped back. And they think that the cotton has gotten too compressed with all this shipping. And also they, they like the fact that the Americans are not the English or aren't, are not the French. Both of the French and the English are setting up colonies. The Americans aren't really interested in colonizing the world. They're interested in trading and interested in you know, free trade. The um, Sultan of Oman lives in Zanzibar, and he got, left Oman because it was too close to Britain, which is really setting up shop in the Persian Gulf and the trade routes to India. And he's very favorable to the Americans because the Americans are not English. Why do you suppose the British were so interested in colonizing and the Americans weren't. It's because they had the means and the Americans didn't? They did have the means, yeah. And the, the Americans had fairly recently had an experience with uh, right. being colonies. Right. And it's going to be changing at this time. You know, this is at the same time the United States goes to war with Mexico. And when the Constitu- Constitution left America, their prospects were either war with Mexico or war with England or war with both. In fact, 1844 was an election year, and the Democrats' campaign slogan was, 54, 40, or fight. That is the 54th parallel, 40th minute, the northern border of British Columbia. The United States wanted, the Democrats wanted all of it, or they were going to go to war with England over the Pacific Northwest. That doesn't happen because the British and the Americans agree to uh, split it at the what's now the 39th parallel, the border of Washington and British Columbia. But uh, the United States will go to war with Mexico in 1845. Okay, can we continue? We went to the Azores, and then what? where did the USS Constitution go after that? It goes to Brazil. And on the way to Brazil, they cross the equator, and they do a ceremony on crossing the equator that they still do on some ships in a modified form. In this case, the day before they're going to cross the equator, they see a bucket of, uh, a little um, bucket of pitch burning in front of the ship, and that's an emissary from Neptune. And then uh, an emissary climbs aboard from King Neptune. And this is a sailor wearing this elaborate costume. 
and he announces that tomorrow you are going to be entering the dominions of King Neptune crossing the equator. Anyone who's not been initiated will have to go through this ceremony of being initiated into those who have so crossed the equator. So did a couple of guys go out in a dory or something? Yeah, yeah they and did. And then yeah, with, yeah. with the bucket of pitch and then yeah, they, yeah, let it on fire. Yeah, light yeah. it on fire. That's right. And then, exactly. Yeah. Okay. This, this is kind of a masquerade that yeah. the sailors are putting on, and it's a great event. And the next, So the next day... They have built a chariot for Neptune, and Neptune climbs aboard, and he has an entourage, and he is dressed like a sea god, and the members of his entourage are dressed like sea nymphs. These are all men, and they're dressed as sea nymphs, sea gods, and they uh, parade around the deck, and they bring a message to Captain Percival that now you're entering our dominions again. Of course, Percival has crossed the equator many times. But there are people aboard who have not. In fact, there are a couple of women on board. Henry Wise, the American ambassador on his way to Brazil, has brought his family along as well as some of his um, slaves are going to Brazil as well. And so everyone who has not crossed the equator is going to have to be initiated. And so they greet Mad Jack, an old friend of King Neptune, welcoming him back to their dominions, and then says, okay, now produce all of the people who have not crossed the equator. And they take a sail and use it to make a tub, and they pump water into the tub. And then they have a couple of barbers who are going, and they have big, um, well, essentially what they're going to do is take each initiate and lather up his face with a mixture of um, tar and suds, and then pretend to shave him and then ducking him into this big thing, this big um, tub of salt water and clean him off. And this is a really a subject of great hilarity for everyone seeing, you know, you're a sailor, you're likely to be flogged if you're insolent, but here you see some of the officers are getting inducted in this way, ducked in this way. The clerk of the ship, Benjamin Franklin Stevens, tries to hide in the captain's, uh, captain's cabin, saying he's too busy for any of this nonsense, but they go and get him and drag him up to the deck. And they have guys standing in the tub to scrub these guys off. Henry Wise, the prospective American ambassador, a congressman from Virginia, he is about to be ducked, and he gives a speech saying, and he's a very eloquent speaker, and I think the thing that tips the argument is he promises a ra good ration of rum to everybody in exchange. Also, he offers up his family. His eight-year-old son also tries to avoid this, but he is grabbed and taken into the tub and uh, shaved and all. So it's uh, and, and then at the end of this, Wise and Captain Percival are standing there watching this show, and they've been filling up the tub by pumping the water. The hose gets loose and it drenches Percival, this old gray-haired captain. He's a very stern guy, but he, he laughs. Any pictures of Percival anywhere? There are some photographs of Percival as an old, well, as an older man. Um, yeah, and he looks like a guy who has spent a long time at sea. Are there any, there must be descendants around. Oh, you there probably, are. You probably are. know them. You probably I've are met members a few. Of the I've met a few. Um, in fact, uh, a week or two before my talk, I got an email from a guy named Chad Percival, Chap Percival, who is a descendant of Mad Jack. And Mad Jack, as I said, lived in Dorchester, and then he's buried in Barnes. Oh, yeah, Market, wasn't that guy there? He was. That, that was a at descendant the, at the of— the talk. Yes, yeah. And there was also—he was a descendant, I think, of Lemuel Shaw. Oh, okay. Lemuel Shaw was also a cantankerous old Cape Codder. He was from Barnstable. He was the chief justice of the Supreme Judicial Court, and he, it turns out, was— Percival's best friend, maybe his only friend, these two kind of cantankerous guys. 
Uh, Shaw had done a lot of legal work for Mad Jack, who needed legal work done for him. Uh, he was always getting into, well, we can talk later about this, but Shaw's, uh, uh, as a way of thanking Shaw for the legal work, Mad Jack had a chair made for him out of wood from the Constitution. And so that chair is now in the archive, it's at the Social Law Library for part of the Supreme Judicial Court because Shaw was Chief Justice of the Supreme Judicial Court. Wow. Shaw's son-in-law was Herman Melville. And in Melville's novel, White Jacket, he has a character named Mad Jack. And that, oh yeah, uh, before the break, can you talk about the number of copies of Melville's books that sold versus the number of copies of an author that you mentioned yes, at the yeah, talk? Yeah, um, Melville's novel, White Jacket, sold pretty well for Melville's books, which didn't usually sell a whole lot of copies. Henry Augustus Wise wrote a series of best-selling Wise novels in the 1850s. Wise was a naval officer, a lieutenant, who during the long time at sea wrote novels. And he wrote a novel called Los Gringos about Americans' Mexican War. And then he wrote a novel basically about Mad Jack. And Mad Jack is a character telling this story. And Wise's books were bestsellers. Melville's were not. Hey, just before my talk, I actually have a first edition of Wise's book about Mad Jack, which I got for about 10 bucks, which you can do. If you want to get a first edition of White Jacket, it's going to cost you about $800 because there are a lot fewer of them printed because the publisher knew Melville's books aren't going to sell. Let's take a break and continue on the and our voyage around the world on the USS Constitution. It's WBZ. So you can talk. Yes, I can. I will and I do. Bradley J. When you listen early in the morning, Jay talking. You are locked up to WBZ. WBZ News Radio 1030. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Turn on your radio. You've got me listening to this. Turn it on. Bradley J. Oh, you're a smooth talker. You are. You are. This is a Bradley J. on BZ Jay talking. You talk the talk. Do you walk the walk? WBZ News Radio 1030. More with Robert Allison, professor, Suffolk University, and trustee, member of the Board of Trustees, USS Constitution Museum, and he knows all about it. So we're aboard the USS Constitution going around the world with Captain Mad Jack Percival. And uh, the government's kind of hoping they don't come back because this, this, uh, this old ship is kind of an albatross for them. But uh, Captain Jack's pretty good captain. He's a very good captain, very good sailor. And we, so we went to, um, we, we've now just crossed the equator. Yeah. And we've got, do we need to talk, talk about Brazil at all? No, well, we he don't did. need to. He, they, they're there for a bit. They reprovision. They drop off Ambassador Wise, and they also provide him with a sofa for the, his lodgings and Wise is a slave owner from Virginia. He becomes governor of Virginia, becomes a Confederate general. But while he's in Brazil, he discovers that England is engaged in the slave trade into Brazil, as are Americans. 
and he becomes persona non grata because he wants to stamp out the slave trade into Brazil. And so by the time the ship comes back, uh, Wise is on his way out as the American ambassador. And also Brazil has a new emperor, Dom Pedro II, who's one of the most extraordinary men of the 19th century. And they go to the opera. The, the biggest opera house in the Western Hemisphere is in Rio de Janeiro. And they see other theaters. They see the museum that Dom Pedro has built, the museum which actually just burned a couple of years ago, which a lot of the natural history of Brazil was destroyed in this fire at the um, museum in Rio de Janeiro. So they um, see a lot there, and then they venture south across the southern Atlantic and then around the um, Cape of Good Hope and into the Indian Ocean. They go to Mozambique and the island of Madagascar, which is governed by a queen, and then to the island of Zanzibar. And there is Sultan Saeed bin Saeed, And the previous year, he had sent a ship to New York to hope to open a direct trade between Zanzibar and New York. There already is trade going on between Zanzibar and the United States, mainly conducted by Americans. They're Salem merchants who have people living in these places, Mozambique, Madagascar, and on the island of Zanzibar, which is really a center for the clove trade. The Sultan is cultivating cloves on Zanzibar, but also the slave trade from East Africa into the Arabian Peninsula and the ivory trade. These places seem extremely, extremely exotic today, and you'd think they would seem more exotic back then because they did not have airplanes, but really places like Zanzibar were more at the top, more on the top of mind of people then in many ways than now, right? Because a lot of goods came from there and a lot of people, a lot more people, a lot more Americans have been there than now as a percentage of the population. I think so. There's, there's this trade is going on with these places. And uh, one reason the United States really wanted to cultivate a good relationship with the Sultan of Oman was a few years earlier, back in the 1830s, an American ship, the Peacock, had nearly run, had run aground off of the coast of Arabia. And some Bedouins saw this beleaguered ship and were going to try to seize it. But someone, uh, some members of the crew get in a rowboat and go to Oman, and there they contact the sultan, and he sends his cavalry out to save the ship, his cavalry and boats, and they tow the ship into the harbor of Oman and then fit it, repair it there. So he's already established himself as a friend of the Americans, as an ally of the Americans. And when they see him in Zanzibar, he has a big dinner for the officers, a huge dinner, uh, when they're roasted goats and turkeys and other things, and he sends just boatloads of fresh fruit and vegetables to the ship as a gift. And one thing that really strikes them is when they are dining with him, they notice on the walls he has pictures of Constitution's fight with the Guerriere. He really likes the Americans more than he does the English. And so he is an ally of the Americans here, and the Americans want to cultivate this relationship with the Sultan of Oman, who has this empire stretching from the coast of Africa into the Arabian Peninsula. And he sees the Americans as a counter to the English who have established themselves in India and the French who are in the process of taking over Madagascar. This has got to be one of the the best journeys of all time, really. Because yeah. it's, it's not like you're the first one to circumnavigate the globe and you're afraid of dying every second. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you have people you know along the way, but it's still... Pretty exciting, and exciting stuff happens. It still is. 
And there had been a number, this is actually toward the tail end of when circumnavigating the globe was really an exciting thing. There had been, the United States had spent, sent three ships around the world just a few years earlier. And so Constitution is following in their footsteps. It's going by itself. Mad Jack had asked if he could have an escort vessel, and the Navy says, no, no reason for that. Nah. And so he's on his own, and they realize this was, probably isn't a good idea because they do get to the coast of Borneo, and the coast hasn't really been charted that well. The British had some charts which aren't, weren't that accurate. They wind up in these surrounded by coral reefs, and at one point they have to have the, boat, the smaller boats tow Constitution backwards because it's can't get out of this coral reef. If it keeps going, it's going to wreck, and the, the coral's going to tear the hull apart. So they have to pull it backwards to get out of this. So, yeah, there are areas that are uncharted, and there are places which, to which the United States has not sent a ship, including Borneo. They, do go, they want to go to Sumatra because that's essential to the pepper trade. Merchants from Salem are trading in pepper, getting pepper from Sumatra, and again, about 10 years earlier, a couple of these trading vessels had been attacked by locals, and the people had been killed. The United States sent a vessel to uh, tell the locals not to um, attack our merchant ships, and Constitution is there to show the flag. And they meet the guy, the local leader, a guy named Poe Adam, who had bailed the Americans out. He had come to their support, and he's telling them how he has suffered for this. Uh, and so you have them meeting people, and we'll, we can talk about Vietnam in a bit because there's an interesting story about what happens. Well, when there's they get the coal story, there's the Vietnam story, yeah. then there's the Marine graveyard yes, in, in Canton. Yeah. Uh, Horatio Hornblower, the story is that the Horatio Hornblower series is focus on this period of time because I feel like I remember the pepper, the pepper trade was part of it. Probably. And what was yeah. the deal with pepper? Did it keep food from going bad? It or tastes, was it, it just, it's a, it's a, it's just a taste thing? It's a taste thing. Salt is what keeps food from going bad. But pepper really is. Think about this. The things we take for granted, pepper, cloves. I don't know if we take cloves for granted. All of these things have to come from somewhere else. And they even see China is invested in Borneo. They find a Chinese whole Chinese city in Borneo because China's population is exploding. And so China is looking to Borneo, and they're there exporting stuff from Borneo that are staples of the Chinese diet. And Singapore, the British have just developed into this port. And so there's a lot of trade going on in Singapore as a way of protecting the Straits of Malacca from pirates, but also it's really a good climate in Singapore. Mad Jack recuperates there. But these clo cloves, pepper, um, sage, these other spices have to come from somewhere. Cinnamon, another... Um, crop you get from these tropical islands. So is this a time when pirates were a, a real problem, a real thing? Was this the heyday of pirates? Well, pirates have probably pretty much always had a heyday. Uh, but yeah, they've, 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 you'll see pirates operating in different areas at different times. And in this period, they're really operating in what's now Malaysia, um, Malaysia, Indonesia. There are lots of these little islands, lots of places to hide, and you have these big merchant ships very weakly protected, coming through them loaded with stuff. Yeah, but the Constitution wouldn't have to worry about a pirate, right? Well, it could, it, it could defeat any pirate. We hope group, so. Right? We, well, we hope so, but you never know. I mean, it could run aground. It could, you know, the they could be tricked. And in fact, when they get to Vietnam, they get into trouble for uh, it's not pirates; it's against a government in uh, Vietnam that's 
Um, it's a long story. We'll, well we have, have to time. get to after the break. We have we time. Do, uh, Great. We'll continue with Bob Ellison from Suffolk University. He's the pride of Suffolk University. That's nice of you to say that. In my eyes. Uh, and the member of the Board of Trustees, USS Constitution Museum. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.